can turn in your Bibles, if you would like to, to Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 16. The verse is also uh, printed there in the bulletin, Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 16. Many of you know that our plan uh, was to begin preaching Isaiah today, uh, but we always say, uh, Lord willing, because we are reminded that we do not know what tomorrow may bring. And so because of uh, all that has happened in this past week with uh, our brother Leo passing into eternity, instead of beginning Isaiah today, we're going to be looking at this verse and really just focusing on this one phrase in Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 16. The woman in the story in, in this book is speaking about her husband. And so she says, My beloved is mine, and I am his. She will later say the same thing in chapter 6, verse 3. Slightly different words. She says, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. Let's pray as we look at this verse. O Lord, you are our God, and so may you, the God of peace, grant us all joy and hope in believing. And we pray that you would give us encouragement through the scriptures that we might have hope. We depend upon you. We pray that you give us your spirit who teaches us all things, who has been given to us by our Savior. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, I'm not going to go into hardly any details about how to interpret the Song of Solomon. Uh, it does seem to me that the book is written to be about human marriage. Uh, it is about a marriage between a husband and a wife who love each other deeply. And there are many things that you can learn about uh, an excellent marriage from this book. But we also know that Ephesians 5 tells us that marriage is created to be a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. God created and instituted marriage to be an earthly reflection that we could look at to understand better the love that God has for his people and especially the love that Christ has for his church. And so Ephesians 5:25 says Christ loved the church. In Revelation 19 we read about the banquet, the wedding feast where Christ will dine with his people and the the marriage will be consummated and we will see Christ and then we read just a few minutes ago about how the church, the bride, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and we will be in the presence of God forever. So because marriage is a picture of Christ in the church, many of the things that we see in Song of Songs about marriage, we can apply to Christ and his love for the church. Christ's love is a perfect love. One reason that I thought about these verses this week, a few days ago, 
uh, is because Leo and I had the blessing of going to the Banner of Truth conference in May, at the end of May, we went together. And I had told Leo about this book called Communion with God by John Owen. And I told him it was my favorite book, and I said, Leo, you have to read this book. Well, also, when we went to the conference, and if you are a first-timer at the conference, you get a special tour of all the books that are for sale. And so they take you in this tour, they tell you about all the great Banner of Truth books that they recommend, and then they will slash the prices. And the catch is that you have to buy those books right then and there, or else you don't get that uh, enormous discount. And so, uh, Leo went to the book tour. I was not able to go. I wasn't a first-timer. So he went to the book tour. One of the books, he says, that was most highly recommended was Communion with God. So Leo says, I got to buy that book. So he bought that book at the end of May. Uh, over the last few months, uh, he was reading through that book. Leo would always read each chapter twice before he would move on to the next chapter. So basically, I'm not sure if he ever finished the book, but he basically read the whole book twice. And so as he was reading the book, and he knew that I love the book, he would come and tell me about it. And he would say, this book is amazing. This book is incredible. And here's what he said. He said, the way that John Owen describes the love that Christ has for us is incredible. The love that Christ has for us is unbelievable. And so I thought of these verses. I thought of Leo and I thought about how in that book, John Owen uses the Song of Songs and uses a verse like this one to unfold and, and show us about the love that Christ has for us. Verse 16, I am my beloved's, my beloved is mine. This verse is telling us about a covenant commitment in marriage. Christ's love for us is unending. He holds fast to us in the covenant the way that a husband and wife join to each other in a covenant with a covenant commitment. So it is that Christ has committed himself to us. We are his. We belong to him. Later in chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, she will say, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. So the picture of the covenant commitment, as strong as death, is like a, a seal that is branded onto you. Much stronger than a, a ring. A wedding ring is a symbol of marriage, but it can be taken off. It can be put on. But a, a brand, a seal can never be removed. And, and that's the point. Set me as a seal upon your arm. Show that you are committed to me forever. This is the love between husband and wife. This is the love that Christ has for his own. I am mine. Uh, I am yours. You are mine. That is the covenant commitment 
of marriage. And so if you belong to Christ, if you trust in him, then you are his. You belong to him, he belongs to you. You don't just belong to him legally. You're legally married. You're legally in a relationship, but you are one. We are united to Christ. And the picture of marriage, again, of a man and a woman becoming one flesh is a mystery of how two people can become one and share their lives together. But this is a mystery that points to Christ and the church. In an even deeper way, in an even greater way, we are one with Christ. You are his. He is yours. And so this is how the Bible speaks about our salvation. Ephesians 1 especially uses this phrase over and over again that we are in Christ. Ephesians 1, 3, with, you are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In him you were predestined for adoption as sons. Adoption in Christ. Verse 6, you are blessed with every grace in the Beloved which is Christ. In him, we have redemption through his blood in verse 7. In him, we have obtained an inheritance in Christ. We hope in Christ, verse 12 says, and in him, we are sealed by the Spirit as a guarantee. Every blessing that you have comes because you are in Christ, united to him, one with him. So, in light of that, we want to think about first why then Christ takes believers to himself and how this verse will apply, would apply to that. And then we want to end by talking about Christ's love for us. How do we interpret the events that happen to us in this life as we suffer? As we have experienced our brother who has gone to be with the Lord and passed into eternity. We don't deny that we grieve. We don't deny that there is loss. We don't deny that we are shocked. And so we can lament to God. We can pour out our hearts before him as Psalm 62 says, we can say, God, we don't understand. Why, why did you do this? Why did you take him? We look at the, the wicked prospering. Why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? As long as we live in this world before the new creation, death will bring its sting as we experience the death of those we love. Romans 8 says, we are groaning with all of creation for the revealing of the sons of God. And so there's a reality that we do feel pain and we do feel grief. Sometimes when uh, people just say, well, I know so-and-so is in a better place. Sometimes it just feels very trite, very cliche, like, you're not supposed to feel bad. You're not supposed to feel any pain or suffering because you just know that someone is in a better place. But it 
is okay to cry, to grieve. And yet, we do interpret all of the loss in light of the truth of the scriptures. And as we've said earlier today, we have confidence, great confidence that Leo died in the Lord. He belonged to the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was Christ's beloved in Christ. And so we can say, as Romans 8 says, what would separate him from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? No, neither death nor life nor anything else will be able to separate him from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He belonged to Christ. He was his. He owned the beloved. He loved Christ. And so we interpret all that has happened in that light. Christ loved him. Christ knew the number of his days. Christ loved him to the end. And so we grieve and we suffer. And it's difficult for us because we can't understand and we live the rest of our lives with the loss. But Leo was always experiencing the love of Christ to the very end. He was experiencing what chapter 2 verse 4 says. When, it said, when she says, he brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. We begin to experience that at salvation. That is when we first enter a relationship with Christ and we receive all of the love of Christ. But that phrase that his banner over me was love tells us that God is loving in all that he does for us. For our brother, God was loving him in Christ to the end. So, what was Christ doing when he took our brother from us? He was taking his beloved to himself. Because his beloved was his. And so he wanted him to be where he is, and so because of his great love for him, he took him to be with himself. Here in chapter 2, uh, we have what are probably newlyweds. It's hard to figure out the timeline of the Song of Solomon and, and when they're married and how long they're married and what's going on. But, but it seems that in chapter 2, they are madly in love. And so they want to be together, this husband and wife. Later in chapter 6, when those words are repeated, uh, they're probably repeated because chapter 5, they are separated. Uh, something happens. They, they have a conflict. They're angry with each other. Uh, she goes off to, to look for him. She gets beaten up, and then they reunite. And they're glad to be reunited, and, and they, they have worked through whatever conflict they had. And so they sort of recommit themselves to each other in chapter 6 with the same words. I'm yours, 
you're mine. But here in chapter 2, uh, we would say they're, they're in the honeymoon phase. They're just madly, deeply in love. They want to be together all the time. Verse 5, she says, I am sick with love. And then the husband comes in verse 8 and 9. And he says in verse 10, my beloved speaks and says to me, arise, my love, my beautiful one, come away. Come away. Come in and be with me. Verse 14, oh, my dove in the clefts of the rock and the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. They are madly in love. And so they want to be together in person. Maybe you've heard uh, the preacher's story about Enoch. Enoch in Genesis 5 says he walked with God and then he was not. He was taken up to be with God. And I've heard several preachers tell this imaginary story, so I don't know where it came from. The imaginary story is that one day God and Enoch, because they had had spent so many days walking together, uh, one day... They were walking and walking and walking together. And, you know, when, like when you're in love, you lose track of time. It's just everything, everything's going so great. And so then at the end of the day, God says, well, we're closer to my home than to yours. Do you want to just go? Do you want to just come home with me? And so God took Enoch. Now, that's a a totally imaginary story, so I'm not saying that's what happened, but this is the idea. We walk with God. We, We long to be with God. We love Christ so much, and Christ loves us so much that he says, like the husband here, I want to see your face. I want you to be with me. Jesus says, in John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Christ's desire, his prayer was that his People would be with him. Just as a married couple want to spend time together and they grow in the depth of their love as they spend time and talk to one another and see each other face to face. The long distance relationships are, are difficult. They're not easy because it's being together that you really learn how to love each other. And so we know, of course, that Christ has sent us his spirit. He's told us it was better for him to go away. We, we know all these things, but we also know that it is not Christ's final plan to be physically separated from us, but that Christ desires that we would be with him where he is. The husband wants to take his beloved to himself. And he prays and he desires that we would see his glory, the glory given to him by the Father before the foundation of the world. This glory that the Father shares with his Son from eternity. 
is the glory that the Son wants us to see. And so if we are going to see that, he must take us to be where he is. My beloved is mine, and I am his. My beloved wants me to be with him. Listen also to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13. And he says a similar truth. 13 verses 8 to 13, he says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is love. And Paul says love never ends. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon on that phrase called heaven is a world of love. If love never ends, heaven is a world of love. So this is what he says. This renders heaven a world of love. For God is the fountain of love, as the sun is the fountain of light. And therefore the glorious presence of God in heaven fills heaven with love, as the sun placed in the midst of the visible heavens in a clear day fills the world with light. The apostle John tells us that God is love. And since God is an infinite being, He is an infinite fountain of love. Since he is an all-sufficient being, it follows he is a full and overflowing, inexhaustible fountain of love. And since he is unchangeable and an eternal being, he is an unchangeable and eternal fountain of love. Heaven is a world of love. Christ loves his own. So why does he take them away? Because he wants them to experience nothing but this fountain of love poured out to them forever and ever. And Paul says, in that place, we see him face to face. Now we see in a mirror dimly, then we see face to face. This is the same point that Jesus is making In John 17, that he wants to be with us and he wants us to see his glory. He wants us, Paul says, Paul says that we we, we want to be in heaven, which is a world of love. And we want to see Christ face to face. Edwards again, he says, oh, what joy will there be springing up in the hearts of the saints after they've passed through this wearisome pilgrimage to be brought to such a paradise as this. Here is joy unspeakable, full of glory. Joy that is holy, enrapturing, divine in its perfection. Love is always a sweet principle and especially divine love. 
This even on earth is a spring of sweetness, but in heaven it shall become a stream, a river, an ocean. All shall stand about the God of glory, who is the great fountain of love, opening their very souls to be filled with those effusions of love poured forth from his fullness. Just as flowers on earth in the spring open their blossoms to the sun to be filled with light and to flourish in beauty under its rays. So, we conclude that Christ takes our brother to himself because he loves him and he wants to see him face to face. And he wants Leo to see him face to face because he wants him to be filled with the joy of love that never ends because he is his beloved. And the beloved is his. So maybe you wonder if in the Bible it says that God protects the godly. Psalm 91, 10,000 fall at your right side, but, but the arrows don't hit me, he says. God preserves his people. God watches over his people. You may wonder, well, how can that be true? It's really not true. We pray prayers. We pray prayers of God to protect people. And, and we wonder, well, well, does God really then protect people? Because it seems that he doesn't. Well, the first thing we say is that, first of all, God protects us in many ways at many times. And you have no idea how many times God has protected every one of us, and we just don't know. And maybe in eternity, we will see how God has saved our lives. He has spared us. And maybe we will see how he has done that in answer to prayers because we prayed for someone when they were going through a surgery and that God in the, his mysterious ways uses those prayers and he answers those prayers to spare the life of one another. God does protect us and God does answer prayers. But the second thing we need to say is that we know that believers will die. And we know that unbelievers will die. So protection cannot mean that none of us ever dies. But the protection that God gives, the confidence and assurance that God gives for the believer is what happens when you die. What happens when you go to eternity? For the believer, we know that to die is gain. That to pass from this world into the next is God taking us to be with him where he is. We can believe life is better after death than on this earth. This is the good news that comes in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Leo called me on Wednesday morning and he started telling me some stories. And you know that every story Leo tells has a spiritual lesson. He always ends his story by saying, 
that's what people need to understand. This is what people don't see. This is what people need to learn. So he told me a story. That a few days before they had gone to this place called uh, Quake Lake. And the lake was formed because there was a river that was going there. And in 1959, he's telling me this whole story. There's a major earthquake. And in the earthquake, the whole side of the mountain falls down and blocks up the river. And it creates a lake. So it's Quake Lake. And so then he says that the... There were people that were camping that night. I think the earthquake happened at night. And so the, the rocks fell. And he said, 27 people died. And so here was his lesson. He said, our life can be over at any time. And then our life really starts. Then our life starts into eternity. He says, people need to realize that that's when our life really starts. We're going to live for eternity. Our brother believed in eternity. He believed that he would go to be with Christ and see his beloved and live in a world of love. Forever and ever. So, this is why Christ takes believers to himself. For the rest of our time, let's focus on how these words apply to us now. Verse 16, I am my beloved's, my beloved is mine. This is what you can say. As a believer, if you're trusting in Christ, you can say, my beloved is mine, I am his. You feel the pain of suffering. You have all these questions of why you wonder why all of this is happening. But even you today, right now, you can say, I am Christ and he is mine. He loves me. And I love him. Christ loves you. Christ loves you now. He loves you fully and completely. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. The Heidelberg Catechism, question one. What is your only comfort in life and in death? It's that I am not my own, but belong both body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. This is your comfort. No matter what happens to you in life, You belong body and soul to Jesus Christ. His banner over you also is love. So everything that he does, he has his banner over you to show his love to you. Christ has united himself to you. He has wedded himself. He saw you in your misery, your inability to help yourself, You lying there in the filth of your sin and sickness and disease and spiritual death. He saw you in your guilt and all of your rebellion against him. And he picked you to marry, to love. Of all people, why would Christ love 
filthy, guilty, rebellious, you. But he did. He had compassion upon you. He set his love upon you. And so the Son of God made himself nothing for you and for the rest of his church. He took on flesh, became a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, so that he could be like you, sympathizing with you in all of your weaknesses, tasting death for you, going to the cross. Christ loved the church, and so he gave himself up for her. Or as Hebrews 12, verse 2 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. The joy set before Christ was the glory of God, and it was the delight of his people. It was because he wanted to be married to a bride. And so he endured the cross and despised the shame. He was jealous for you. He wanted you for himself. He didn't want you to keep loving other gods and loving other people. He didn't want to share your love with anyone else. And so he even gave up his life to make you his. And now Christ is your perfect husband. And because Christ loves you, he gives you all that belongs to him. He says this in John 14, 21. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. I will love him and manifest myself to him. A husband and a wife love each other, and so they share of themselves with each other. They share things about themselves that do not belong to the rest of the world. They are private. They belong between husband and wife. Christ loves us. And so, he says, I manifest myself to you. I I make myself known. I, I share of myself with you in a way that I don't share with the world. He makes known to you his grace. He makes known to you his righteousness and his peace and the Holy Spirit to overcome sin. He makes known to you his love that he pours out for you to the uttermost, as he says in John 13. So why does the world look at Christ and despise him? And they say he has no form or majesty that we should desire him. And yet you look at Christ and... And you say, he is glorious. It is because Christ has manifested himself. He has revealed himself, shown himself to you because he loves you. This is from John Owen. This is a a long list of the loveliness of Christ. This is what Christ has made known to you Because he loves you. And this is what he wants you to experience. As the one who receives his love. So he says. He is lovely in his person. The glorious all sufficiency of his deity. Gracious purity. Holiness of his humanity. Authority and majesty. Love and power. 
He is lovely in his birth and incarnation. When he was rich for your sakes, he became poor, taking flesh and blood because we partook of the same, being made of a woman that for us he might be made under the law, even for our sakes. He was lovely in the whole course of his life, in the holiness and obedience, which in the depth of poverty and persecution he exercised, doing good, receiving evil, blessing, being cursed, reviled, reproached all his days. He was lovely in his death, yea, most lovely there to sinners. Never more glorious and desirable to us was he than when he came broken and dead from the cross. Because then had he carried all our sins into the land of forgetfulness. Then had he made peace and reconciliation for us. Then had he procured life and immortality for us. He was lovely in his whole employment, his great undertaking in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, being a mediator between God and us to recover God's justice and to save our souls, to bring us to an enjoyment of God who are at an infinite distance from him by sin. He is lovely in the glory and majesty with which he is crowned. Now he is set down at the right hand of the majesty on high, terrifying to his enemies, yet full of mercy, love, and compassion towards his beloved. He is lovely in all those supplies of grace and consolation, dispensations of his Holy Spirit, of which his saints are made partakers. He's lovely in the tender care, power, and wisdom which he exercises in the protection, safeguarding, and delivery of his church and people in the midst of all oppositions and persecutions. He's lovely in all his ordinances and the whole of that spiritually glorious worship which he has appointed to his people where they can draw nigh and have communion with him and his father. He is lovely and glorious in the vengeance he takes and will finally execute on the stubborn enemies of himself and his people. He is lovely in the pardon he's purchased and dispenses and the reconciliation he has established and the grace he communicates, the consolations he administers, the peace and joy he gives his saints, his assured preservation of them to glory. What shall I say? There is no end of his excellencies and desirableness. He is altogether lovely. This is our beloved. This is our friend. He's quoting Song of Songs 5.16. Altogether desirable. You, the wife, you, the bride of Christ, are to look at Christ and say he is completely, altogether lovely. This is my beloved. This is my friend. Christ has manifested all of these things that make him lovely to you and not to the world because he loves you. Our call is faith. Faith to believe that right now Christ loves his church. Christ loves Albany Baptist Church. Christ loves Leo Frizzino. And so he took him to be with himself. And Christ loves 
Charmin. And he loved her on Thursday and loved her on Friday and loves her today and loves us now. Jesus loves me. This I know. We never get past needing to believe a simple statement in a children's song. Jesus loves me. Even now. Even in all this. So receive the love of the beloved. Receive his grace. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. Sometimes it takes faith to live in the Son of God and to believe that he loves you. We are called to look to him, to behold his glory, to see him as altogether lovely until we see him face to face and to have our hearts attached to him, to live in fidelity to him. I am my beloved's. My beloved is mine. Nobody else. Nobody else has my heart. Nobody else has my love. Nobody else has my affections. No other gods. No other things of the world. I attach myself to him. I'm in a covenant commitment with him. I give my life to him. May the Lord Jesus hear you say these words to him from the heart. Lord Jesus, you are my beloved. I am yours. You are mine. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you and praise you that you are love and that you have revealed the fullness of your love through the Son. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your great love even in laying down your life for us so that we might know that you do all things well for us, and that we do belong to you. We pray for the encouragement and the help of your spirit to live by faith in the Son of God. Draw near to us as we draw near to you. We ask in the name of our beloved Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.